Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I'm your host, LD. With me by my side, as always, is TJ. Hi, TJ. Hey guys. Hey, LD. Hello. How was your week? Uh, Good. Good? Yeah. So TJ's been sick. I've been sick she just and had a touch of death. Then playing catch up at the office, and uh, I'm a little tired tonight. But you like me better when I'm tired because I'm funnier. I do like you, I'm punchier. I, yeah, all the episodes that we've recorded for you have been at night. And, I know. And, <laughs> um, I'm, so, I'm my best in the dark hours. Yeah, I'm I'm my best in the dark just because that's how my face looks good. So. <laughs> Um, Your face is always gorgeous. You're so sweet. So what are we going to be talking about this week, TJ? So this week we're talking about Big J McNeely. And I'm I'm actually going to say something. I'm actually kind of excited right now because I know nothing about Big J McNeely. So the fact that you're talking about him, I feel like you're not alone. There's a lot of people that don't know about Big J McNeely. I feel like this is one of the things that I really love about the podcast and what we're doing here, because not only do we get to talk about the iconic music legends that everybody knows, all those household names, but we also get a chance to talk about some of the people that maybe people don't know that, at least in my opinion, people should. Um, So we get to sing about the unsung hero. So this is one of those episodes, which is I'm really excited about it, too. Yeah, so... So I'm glad you're excited. I am excited. (laughs) I like learning new things, and I like learning about new... Like, not new artists, but artists that are... Seem to have made a big impact in some way, but we don't know them. And so this is, I think, one of those cases... Definitely. It was it was one of those where I, I actually didn't even really know him or his impact. I actually saw him record for his 91st birthday. I happened into my local bar that I like to go to. Uh, you know, I wandered in after gardening with my mom. I'm like, I need to go have an adult beverage and just relax. And I went in and at first I was like, oh, man, there's like music on this afternoon, like live band. Wait, you went to a bar in the middle of the afternoon? Okay, I'm not going to judge you. I'm sorry. It was a Sunday. And I did a lot of work before then. (laughs) So, you know, shush. (laughs) (laughs) I went in to the bar and at first I was like, oh, man, I don't want to listen to a live band right now. Like, I just want to have my beer and I want to listen to the jukebox and just chill. That's not a common thing. I really enjoy the live bands. This particular bar called Joe's Great American Bar and Grill, it's in Burbank. Um, It's a local spot for me. But they actually are really, really good about getting talent in that are kind of maybe some unsung heroes or are bigger names that maybe just aren't as big anymore. He does a really, really great job at curating some really cool artists in there. So I should have known better that it was going to be a great show anyways. But um, if you're in the area at all, you should definitely go over there at some point or check out the website, see if anybody that you like is playing there. They get some really great acts in there. So I should never think that I'm not going to enjoy myself. So he was playing there and it was really cool because it was his 91st birthday bash. So the guy is turning 91 and he chooses to go and play a show. And they had some documentarians in there kind of filming and, and doing all this stuff. So it was one of those like, I don't know what's going on, but all right, sure, we'll check it out. And it turned into a really great show, and it led me down this path of trying to figure out who he was. And I got to tell you guys, even though you don't know his name, 
I'm hoping that this episode will inspire you like it did me to go and and maybe do a little digging. You know, he he was incredibly influential and doesn't necessarily get the recognition for it. So without further ado, I'll kick us off. Go and for get, it. And get us started on his, uh, his whole life. Oh, I also want to preface as we go into this that there isn't a ton of information on him because as we've pointed out, he's not as well known as some of the other artists that we'll cover uh, in other weeks. But what was out there is a lot of interviews with him. So you do get a lot of his stories, but it's not going to be necessarily the most chronological of orders. We're going to do it in the style of Big J, a little more bluesy, jazzy, you know, telling stories to learn about. So you're asking the audience to just take a walk with you. Yeah, just take just just act like we're sitting around telling stories. So we'll get started. Big J McNeely was born on April 29th, 1927, in the middle of the Depression, as Cecil James McNeely in Watts, California, just outside of Los Angeles. You know, he's basically kind of living in the country. You know, it is noted in some of the interviews that his family, I mean, they didn't really suffer for food. They had vegetable gardens and they had some some chickens and turkeys running around in their yard. And, and so they were they were fine food-wise. So they didn't struggle with that, really. But his father, Dillard, was a porter on a floating casino that was off the Santa Monica coast. And his mother, Armonia, was actually a Native American woman. And so she would make quilts and blankets that his dad would then sell to supplement the family income. Mm-hmm. So kind of cool. I had to do quite a bit of digging to find that out. <laughs> you know what, though? If, if they were uh, still alive and kicking today, they would have a thriving farmer's market and an Etsy shop. Probably, yeah. She would, at least. <laughs> They're just pioneers. <laughs> yeah. I like that you say pioneers because we'll get back to that later. Okay. When he was 16 years old, about 1943, uh, this is kind of the moment that he cites first going into music. Um, 1943, he's 16 years old. He's working at the Firestone Rubber Company, which, you know, they make tires, Firestone tires. You know? mm-hmm. So he's working at the rubber company. And he recalls in uh, in one of the interviews that the first four hours were fine, but the next four hours were tough. And he says... I thought there had to be a better way to make a living than working eight hours a day. <laughs> so I feel you. he ended up taking up the saxophone. Uh, his brother, Robert, also played saxophone. But he also had a, he had a job basically coming out of the Depression. So, I mean. Right. And at a young age, you know. So, again, I mean, he's, he's still doing all right. But he quickly learned that that was not for him. I mean, who um, wants to work eight hours a day? That's so long. It's yeah. Like one third of your day. Yeah. Oh, you're telling me. You know, in his family's musical, both his mom and his mother played piano. His brother, Robert, played saxophone as well. And um, when his brother got drafted to World War II, he had left his saxophone behind. So, so he picks up his brother's saxophone and starts taking lessons with the lady down the street for 25 cents a piece. And so he starts taking lessons the same time as uh, with the same lady as Sonny Chris, which basically a childhood friend of his. Eventually, he gets put in touch with and grad and kind of graduates, if you will, to taking lessons from a gentleman that plays first chair with the RKO Orchestra. 
And that's who taught him really about vibrato and kind of really started teaching him some of the technique things that he needed to get a big sound. Now, for people at home, what what is the first chair? So first chair, when you're talking orchestra, is basically like the best player of that section. And then RKO, the orchestra, I'm assuming that has to do with like RKO pictures and RKO radio, like they would provide the music for the movies and the radio shows, I'm guessing at that time? I'm guessing yes. Okay. There was not really a lot about it. Again, kind of a lot of the information is piecemealed from several different interviews. So if he skims over it, I don't have too much information and I apologize for that. So that's... This guy's really kind of who teaches him all these techniques to get that big sound, which he'll become famous for. Meanwhile, while this is all happening, he's playing in high school bands, again, with Sonny Chris and Hampton Hawes. Now, the reason I keep bringing up these names is these are childhood friends of his, but they also both go on to become really notable jazz musicians in their own rights. So he's playing with these guys, no big deal, whatevs. And then they go on to be big, notable jazz musicians. And he kind of branches a different way, inadvertently. You know, he's kind of starting, trying to make it as a jazz musician at this point. But as the story continues, you'll kind of see why he veered off. His brother, when his brother returns home from the war, he's still in the studying phases, but he's in high school and all that. So they both start studying voice, figuring that at some point, if they want to continue in music, they're probably going to have to sing. But they're also using it because they're both saxophone players. They're also using it again to kind of really develop their technique and really improve their, as they call it, blowing, you know, their their saxophone play skills. Because a lot of those same skills transfer. I mean, when you're singing, you're using your diaphragm to push the air and control the air, which gives you different power and different abilities with your voice that translates back to the saxophone. You'll kind of notice Big J remains a student for a lot of his career and really just works on developing, developing, developing and improving and building out what becomes his signature sound through several years and through several different influences. Because he's doing all this, he's basically playing in a whole different way now than most jazz musicians at the time. He's using more of his mouth. Like at the time, like (laughs) this sounds really weird. You know, the style at the time with jazz is, 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 is using very light mouth manipulations on, on the saxophone and, you know, what they call a little lip. And he's kind of going at it with this whole big sound. So he's developing across, instead of having, you know, he's starting to learn his limitations that he started this process later in life than he maybe would have liked if he wanted to be a big name jazz musician. And so he's not, he admits that his ear isn't as good and his, his techniques maybe aren't as refined as some of these musicians, jazz musicians. So he starts recognizing that he's playing more from his soul and he's putting that heart in it where he doesn't have necessarily the same technical abilities as some of the big name jazz musicians and it's not to say that he didn't play jazz or that he wasn't good at it it's just that the style that he ends up in is vastly different and kind of becomes its own thing funny enough at one point I I saw in one of the documentaries he talks about he actually wanted to be a comedian (laughs) 
Interesting. And so before he decided to really pursue music, like he wanted to be a comedian. And so he went and tried out on the gong show and they pulled him off stage and he obviously didn't make it very far as a comedian. So he went back a few weeks later with his saxophone. And again, I'm, I apologize. I'm not sure where this fits into the timeline of all this studying that he's doing and the experience in the playing that he's doing because it was just kind of an anecdote in the interview as well. So he talks about how he failed trying to be a comedian on the gong show, but he went back a couple weeks later with his saxophone and he won. <laughs> so I'm wondering if they had an applause meter. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> I, I wasn't born. I was a, I was a long way from being born at that time. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. Fair enough. <laughs> This is the kind of gems you're going to get throughout this of just me remembering little anecdotes I saw along the way because I have no idea where they fit into the timeline at all. Well, that's the hard <laughs> part is like there there are, you know, you have these musicians. Again, you have these people who made like a huge influence in in very recognizable ways, but you can't point your finger and go, he's responsible. And it seems like coming into the 60s, seemed to be when they kind of started paying attention to people's backstories and started paying attention to like where did you come from where are you going where are you at now and kind of documenting it as you know and really from the 20s you know the andrew sisters and the glenn miller band and like that kind of stuff like unless they were huge noteworthy newsworthy people it just didn't seem to matter what people's past were for a lot of these people that made an impact in some way, but not in a way that would put them on a musical map. Yeah. And I definitely give credit because there are resources out there. I mean, there are books. There's, you know, a book about him called Nervous Man Nervous. And Tracy um, just can't read. So <laughs> she never learned how. It's okay. We still love her. Okay. It's not that I can't read. It's that I have a severely limited time to read. <laughs> Yeah, Tracy has so, a, a thing called a job. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I have a job. Oh, and a dog. And a dog. And a fiance. And a, you know, all and that. And a podcast. And a podcast and music. And I have, I have many more goals and interests than I have time in a day. <laughs> They're definitely out there. If you, at the end of this, decide you really want to go find out more about him, there are resources. For my purposes, I don't know if you can note it can tell yet since it's only been a few episodes that I really kind of like a narrative in the stories and a lot of this stuff does come from him or from direct interviews with him so we're going off that but I think that brings a human element to these stories is having <laughs> having those like side stories and having those little anecdotes oh yeah you, you get to the person that they were which is just it's I, f I feel like it's way better than just like facts and figures so oh yeah so his brother and him, you know, they're taking voice lessons, but they're also going around together and playing shows because his brother plays was actually playing the baritone saxophone and he was playing tenor. So two different saxophone types. There's four different kinds of saxophones, the baritone, tenor, alto and soprano. Jay or Cecil, he's still going by Cecil. Cecil and his brother, Robert would go out and play all these different shows together again just kind of trying to be out on the scene in one of the interviews he notes that he'd go out to the clubs 
in downtown LA for the show for shows at places like the Orpheum. And he recalls that places like that, like if you got there before midnight and paid a 50 cent cover, you could stay as long as you wanted, as long as you got there before midnight. So and he the, would. The Orpheum still exists, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I saw a show there. I feel like, yeah. I do they? I think they just do Broadway musicals now, don't they? I think so. It's more classy. It's a classy joint. Oh, give me, give me either one. I'll take both. Yeah, both ways. Yeah. So he would go there. Yeah. So he'd go and watch these shows for like fifty cents, and he said he he just so then he'd get there by midnight and he'd stay until it was over. So it was at one of these shows that he saw Illinois Jacket, uh, who is a, a, a jazz saxophonist and. Did he have snazzy jackets? I I couldn't tell you. I, I wasn't there. <laughs> Build the time machine. Pro- probably yes, because at the time, the jazz musicians that were making their way around the circuit, and it's, it's something else that he cites, is that he realized that it was going to be really hard for him to make it as a jazz musician because they all dressed really snazzy, and he didn't have the money for that. Got it. He was in hand-me-downs and all that stuff, so probably was a pretty nice jacket, you know. So he's at one of these shows... And he sees Illinois Jacket, and so he's playing a song called Flying Home, where he plays, Illinois Jacket, plays a 64-bar solo. It's long. It's a long solo. Most bar, most solos are 8 to 16 bars. Yeah, I think because when you do a musical yeah. audition, it's 16 to 32 bars. Yeah, that's like four times the normal solo length so it's a long solo but in this solo illinois jacket he's kind of doing the little one note he's he's doing these pops these which inspires jay cecil at the time inspires him to really kind of take that because he he loved the power of it he loved the heart of it and the spirit of it so it inspires him to to kind of take that and build off of it and develop it with his own playing style. This leads to what he is now famous for, which is called honking. And in R&B music, it's very popular, uh, especially in the 40s and 50s, for these horns to honk. And it's taking that one note thing and kind of repeating that one note in a powerful, loud way. Let me see if I can't look up. Maybe a sound clip or something. Yeah. Because it is. It's that, that, like, and he's adding vibrato and he's doing all this stuff and he's kind of putting character, even if he's playing that same note, he's putting that, that power and that heart and that soul into it, which leads to that signature honking and screaming style. So this is an example of honking. So basically hitting that same note that is is an example of it. And then he does it in in so many different ways too to just add these these punches to the music. Um, And it's kind of developing this style called jump blues. So that's kind of what's happening when he's developing this honking style. He's also kind of developing this whole jump blues movement so he's going around and he's playing all these shows and he's creating this style that's all his and this is kind of when in 1948 
this uh, man named Ralph Bass. He's an A&R guy at, at Savoy Records, approaches him and asks him if he wants to try to cut a record. You know, at the time, it's like a single is a record. It's not full length LPs and albums. He says, well, yeah, of course I want to cut a record. And he goes to a little record store in, in Watts. The guy, he only brings in a few albums at a time because he doesn't want to get stuck with them. And so he goes and talks to the guy and the guy gives him a Glenn Miller album, you know, Glenn Miller album where he's playing the drums. He takes this home and he ends up writing kind of this jump blues song around that drum track. So then he can go in and and record what will be Deacon's Hop, which is one of his biggest songs and his first big song. In the meantime, before they release the song, Ralph, the same A&R guy, talks with them. They're in a taxi, leaving a show back to Jay's house. And and he says, you know, the name Cecil sounds kind of square. You know, what do your friends call you? (laughs) And because he's like, you know, you need a big name if you want to make it. You need a you need a better name. You need something like <clears throat> Illinois Jacket. Yeah. He says you need something more commanding if you want to be big. And so he says, what do, what do your friends call you? And he tells them his friends call him James. His middle name is James. And that's what his friends call him. So, so Ralph says, that's great. We'll call you Big J. And there you go. That's how Big J got his name in the taxi ride. <laughs> I love finding out how people got their nicknames i mean you got yours because you're tracy jane yeah and then tj i got i actually got mine on a set of a movie because it was working with a bunch of older people that had been working together for years and years and so they had all known each other and on set there was a lynn and a lindley and that was just too much for them (laughs) and so they were like do you have anything else that you go by and i'm like my husband calls me little bear and they're like that's not gonna happen so they're like, you well, don't want everybody on set calling you by your pet name so it was it was funny because the the girl sitting next to me just goes what's your middle name and i said douglas and she goes okay so call yourself ld and i'm like okay cool and so that's how i got the ld and i was working on a set of a, a chinese tv show as a pa and they would call me ld and everybody on the crew like 90 percent of the crew only spoke Chinese. And so I'd get oh, my no. call I get my call sheets in Chinese and I'd just be like, okay, well thank God the numbers are the same, like on the call <laughs> sheet so I know what time to show up. And then I could figure out the address based on the maps that they would provide. And so we were working one night and I happened to yell at somebody because they were walking into the middle of the shot. And the first AD walks over and he's like, uh, our director wants to know what does the LD stand for? And I said, it's my name. It's it's Lindley Douglas. And he goes, okay, because he thought it was the little dictator. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. So Ralph talks to, talk, you know, gives him this new name. And uh, yeah, so the album, then Deacon's Hop. The record is released as Big J McNeely, I think, and the Blues Jays. Um, Blues Jays? Yeah. (sighs) I don't know. Okay. I think. Not confirmed. But anyways, he finishes the recording for Deacon's Hop, which will become a very big record for him. However, no one will play it because we're in that very special time. Payola. No, he's a black artist. 
Ah. It's been that very special time That's in our history. So nobody will play the song until they get it to a DJ named Hunter Hancock. And he is an R- an L.A. R&B DJ, which how many more acronyms are, can we use here? Uh, abbreviations? I don't know. Uh, so he's an R- he's an L.A. R&B DJ who... Has a Ph.D. <laughs> and an MBA from MIT and UCLA. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> I give up. <laughs> I just broke Tracy. I give up. I broke Tracy. I'm so sorry. I just want to talk about Big J. <laughs> so they get it to, to Hunter Hancock, uh, who is an L.A. R&B DJ. And he's the only DJ in town that will play black artists and black music. So... He gets it. He so he essentially breaks Big J, like gives him his break, and and the song catches on and becomes a number one hit on the R and B chart. Which again, and we're going to kind of come back and touch on this a little bit more in the next few minutes here as we go through. So Deacon's Hop is released by Hunter Hancock in 1949 and earns him a number one placing on the R and B chart. Which, because of the era, again, it's called the race record chart. Jesus. So this is going to kind of define now Big J's sound going forward. And he does get a lot of success with Deacon's Hop. And later that year, he, you know, gets another charting single with a song called Wild Wig. Um, but this kind of defines where Big J is going now. Because now that he's done this and he's doing this jump blues high energy songs now this is kind of where the jazz option is no longer something for him because now everybody just wants to hear that same thing from him so he's making this segue away from from jazz at this point whether he likes it or not it's just the direction that he's going because he's kind of built this whole different style now and He's not the only one doing it, but he becomes wildly popular for this. Mind you, he still kind of didn't intend for this to happen. He still kind of sees himself as a jazz artist, but he sees himself as a kind of new jazz artist, a new type of jazz artist. The way that he's playing, he's kind of describing his intention as a jazz musician for people who want to dance. And that's kind of how he views himself and how he considers himself. Interesting because when you think about blues, like the difference between blues and jazz is when you think jazz, you think 20s and swingers and like the Charleston. And, you know, when you're talking about this time period, you're thinking about a very specific type of jazz. Whereas blues is like a sit in a chair and smoke a cigarette and have a beer and think about how bad your day was kind of music. Well, and that's just it. So he doesn't kind of see himself really in one category or the other because he's gone around with all these jazz guys like Miles Davis and he, you know, grew up playing with Sonny Chris. And so he's kind of he's kind of carving out his own thing right now and kind of crossing this 
jazz blues world into rock and roll. This is why I really felt it important to have an episode on Big J because, again, he's doing this thing and he's really not being recognized for it. But it be- has become kind of a big part of where music came from and where it went. So... So is this anyway. like, is it, when, when, what time frame are we in right now? So right now we're in 1949. And, you know, so Deacon's Hop comes out. Because I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit here. Understand that he still has played with all these people. And he's still respected by these people. But even by his measure, he doesn't feel like he's as good. And he wants to play from with his heart and his soul. And he creates this whole other style and he does he but he still considers himself to be a jazz musician for people who want to dance and i think that's really a great way to think about it because as we progress into the story again if you know him and you start looking him up or even if you you know if you don't know him and want to look him up you'll start to see there's this whole big persona that starts coming out and it leads again to yet another influential move of his, which is in performance style. He's widely acknowledged to be a first to make showmanship an important element in live performance. So now you've already got, he's developed this style based on sound and creating that honking and that big energy and that loud sound that's already going to make people get excited. And it's doing that with Deacon's Hop. And he's touring around the country now. And really kind of everybody's getting revved up and riled up already. Like the kids are, the teenagers. One of the big things that Big J McNeely is known for is this performance persona. And he's already kind of walking through the crowd while he plays. And as he cites, it's because he wants people to feel like he's one of them and and realize that and recognize that and that he's he's just one of them. But one of the other things that he's very well known for is this laying on his back on the floor, playing his saxophone up in the air, kicking his feet and really just in it. That sounds unsanitary. <laughs> he puts his jacket down on the floor and lays on that. Cause did he get it from Illinois jacket? <laughs> he did not get it from Illinois jacket. He does note um, in some of the interviews that he always figured, well, he'll just throw his jacket on the floor because he gets his suit cleaned after each show anyways. So he'll just throw that down and he'll lay on that and he don't care if it gets dirty, whatever, because he's playing. He's having a good time. So how that came about was actually purely by accident. It's playing a show in Clarksville, Tennessee. Again, remember, Deacon's Hop just dropped. So he's going around promoting. He's playing this show in Clarksville, Tennessee. And the audience isn't responding. That's the worst. It's the worst. When people are just, when you're like trying to lay your heart and soul out on the line and the audience is just sitting there staring at you, it is so awkward and so hard. Like, I'm not even going to lie. I've been there and it, it's just yeah, not Yeah, because you're a live performer. Fun. I mean, I've done yeah, karaoke where fun. people weren't paying attention to me and I got pissed off. Also, you have to think about the implications is that... I mean, he's, yeah, he's it's really hard with, to like, stay on track. He's dealing with race relations and he's in Tennessee yeah. performing and people aren't paying attention like that's yeah. not. It's really hard to stay I mean, on track because there are so many implications socially about this, too. Not just yeah. not just the influence of the music part of it, but just all of all around. Yeah. And because as you'll so, learn later, he's actually bridging gaps here. Don't don't it's please don't really be cool. defeated because this is you did. This yeah. is excellent information. And it's. It's really hard. I'm like going, 
don't say anything just i know you're having a we want i know because we want to riff on it together and like have that dialogue but it's so hard to keep like keep it in line already (laughs) but here's the thing is like it pisses me off talent shouldn't have a color no talent talent shouldn't have a sex talent shouldn't have these boundaries it shouldn't there shouldn't be a boundary for talent and there shouldn't be who cares if he's black does he have talent great we're talking about jay's performances oh yeah so so he's in clarksville we were at the part where nobody's paying attention to him so he comes back after intermission none of these people are paying attention to him really they're just sitting there watching they're not reacting they're paying attention i guess but they're not reacting and he's decided screw it he's gonna try to get a reaction out of them however he needs to do it so he comes up through the crowd as he's wont to do and as he's walking through the audience people are kind of like what is this guy doing (laughs) like "Hmm, i don't know and he ends up down playing on his knees and they're starting to react and get a little riled up like wait what's this guy doing oh my gosh like they've never seen this before and then this leads to him then bending backwards laying down full on his back playing on his back on the floor in the middle of the audience and they start freaking out so he got a reaction (laughs) (laughs) so now he decides okay well that was kind of cool I'm going to try this again at the next gig. So he does it again at the next gig in Fort Worth, Texas. Same thing. Everybody starts freaking out. So he brings it back to L.A. And again, freaking out. So he's already now getting really into not only does he have this whole different thing that he's doing with the honking and the big sound. And now he's doing the showmanship of walking through the crowds and laying on the floor. And this is pre Elvis at this point, guys, this is only 1949. This is pre Elvis. This is the early days of this audacious and over the top performance. So really like before this, it was just like you stand stand in one place not necessarily and that you have to stand. And... Well, it's not really guitars either at this point. No, I'm talking about like, you know, as as far as performances or just like people would play in an orchestra. So they just sit down in one place and guitars. Yeah. 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 But so like, yeah, this blues and this jazz, like I'm sure there's guitars and whatever, but like the guitar had been. <laughs> I don't even think I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> when, did, when did the freaking guitar get invented? I don't think that's right. I don't know. I'm pretty sure the guitar was... Well, this is all preempting, though, like the electric guitar for sure. I'm sure the acoustic... I know the acoustic guitar is around, but the electric guitar isn't. He does all this, and again, he's touring around, and he's playing on the floor, and it's exciting, and it's crazy. There's a famous photo, the infamous photo, that if you search Big J McNeely nine times out of ten, the first photo that's going to pop up is this image of him playing his saxophone, laying on the floor with all these teenagers, white teenagers, losing their crap all around him. They can't believe it. They can't believe this sound. They can't believe this energy and this performance. And it's just unbelievable. So there's all these photos from this show in L.A. when he gets back to L.A. bringing this back where they just they can't even contain themselves. Like it's just this is the start of the the teenage freakouts, I feel like. 
And I've seen that photo before, and it's it's so funny because it looks like it's staged because these people are in such a heightened yeah they're just whipped up into a frenzy. They just like they they have like I'm not gonna lie they're like kind of orgasmic faces. Yeah, like they just can't believe it. You know, so this is really kind of again, this is where why he's acknowledged to be somebody that was one of the first people to really make showmanship a thing in performances. You know, as I mentioned, he would regularly walk through the crowds during his performances. So his manager, Chuck Landers, introduces him to a staging expert. So this is somebody that you would hire in to help you really hone your performances. So the staging expert kind of works with him to help him refine these outrageous performances to really help him make the maximum impact and keep that energy going that he wants. So he's really thinking about this and it showed in his performances. Like he's people that know him, he's widely renowned for this. It leads me to another funny story. So again, he's making these outlandish performances. He ends up actually getting arrested. What? In, San, in a show in San Diego. Uh, again, as I've mentioned, he walks through these crowds. Well, so he's trying to do it at this show in San Diego. And he walks through the crowd and walks right out the door with the audience following him. He's still playing like he was inside. Well, apparently there's a law and he, you can't do that. <laughs> in san diego so there's there goes my weekend plans (laughs) no don't go play in your saxophone honking down the sidewalk ld Uh, it is hard so he so there's a cop and he calls it into the station house and they come and arrest him in the middle of his show seriously for causing a scene you know he'd done it i guess at other performances like uh at the birdhouse in new york and all that but apparently there was this law and he didn't know he couldn't do it there and so one of the other band members, the band is still inside playing. <laughs> to an empty crowd? Well, not an empty crowd. There's still people inside too, but <laughs> but he never comes back. <laughs> and so they're like, oh, crap, something happened. So one of the band members has to run down, runs down to the station house, pays his bail so he can go back and keep finish the show. <laughs> <laughs> like... And they're still on the same song because it's jazz. It's not jazz. It's jump blues now. Okay. But yeah, so he, I mean. That's the longest drum solo ever recorded. <laughs> right. And I don't know, maybe the guy went on like an intermission. Maybe they called an intermission to go get him out of jail. But he comes back and he finishes the show. But, but I how mean. How do you just jump right to, oh crap, he went to jail? Because like, if I walk out of a show, you're going to be like, all right, check check Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. Find the Wendy's. Where's the Chick-fil-A? Well, I'm guessing one of the audience members probably clued him in like, oh, yeah, they took him to jail. And so he went and got him out. (laughs) But I just, I mean, that's the scene that he's causing. That people don't know what to do with this. So when all else fails, take him to jail because I don't know what to do with this. But people are freaking out. Like I'd take him to the hospital before I took him to jail. Like it's probably, there was a grown man writhing on the floor of the... It was probably like a disturbing the peace or something. Inciting That they just did not know... Yeah, that they just didn't know what to do with this. And especially because, again, he's a black musician. His audiences, as, and I'm going to touch on this later, so just have patience with me. But his audiences are highly integrated. So as you can see from the photo, from that infamous photo, his audiences are highly integrated. 
People cannot understand how this black man's music is getting all these white people up in a frenzy. So anyway, uh, one final note on his like showmanship performances and stuff. So again, Big J's ever the grower and always trying to, you know, find that next thing. So, you know, he eventually actually does performances now at a place. And, and I apologize. It was really hard to make out in the documentary because this is, again, him recounting his own stories. But one of the documentaries touches on he he paints his saxophone with glow in the dark or black light sensitive paint. And then they turn the lights off in the club. So then he's on the floor or running around playing a glow-in-the-dark saxophone. So all you, all you can see is the saxophone. That's kind of awesome. Like, it's really awesome, right? Like, this, he's pushing all kinds of boundaries. This is, you know, I don't have an exact timeline, but all this is happening somewhere between 1949 and 1960. Like, this is boundary pushing. This is not happening a lot. So... It's just, it's crazy. And so this is the point where I feel like I've reached, I really need to start kind of flushing out a little bit more on the race stuff. And for that, I'm going to kind of go back to the photo a lot. We just call it the photo because I honestly don't know what else to call it. Actually, um, it's going to be the episode photo. So if you don't know what photo we're talking about, go back and look at the image for the for the episode. And unfortunately... Because of everything, and and as you've noticed, probably, we can't really avoid having a little bit of a race conversation here. It is the time in which he's coming up in all of this. It's really kind of unavoidable. What is really cool here is that he's actually playing to highly integrated audiences. So when you look at that photo, it's a bunch of Caucasian white kids it's white teenagers that are there listening to this freaking out and partially part of this is going back to Hunter Hancock the DJ that that broke Deacon's Hop he was the only DJ in town that would play black music and black artists as I mentioned but his audience was mostly comprised of white and Spanish teenagers young adults so as a result, I mean, it can't it can't help but then end up with these highly integrated audiences and these kids and they love it. They just love it. But it is tough because the white club owners, they don't know what to do with this. They're afraid that the that they're going to cause riots because they're they're reacting so manically and and so energetically and so ferociously because this is kind of this jump blues thing is kind of kicking off where rock and roll is starting. And these reactions are big reactions. It's stuff that they haven't seen before. They haven't heard before. They've not, they don't know what to do with this. But Big J kind of encouraged it because he wanted his audiences to feel something. His words in one of the interviews, he just, he felt like they reacted like that because they were waiting to feel something and he couldn't wait to give it to them. And you're thinking like, this is the time when kind of suppression was the social norm where it was you mm-hmm. know cross your cross your legs at the ankles and it was a much more prim and proper time yeah like we you're only just starting to get 
rock and roll started and and it is very soda shop and poodle skirts and whatever it is i mean he's but there's a lot that goes into it's the argument of does music reflect the times or does time reflect the music and someone like big j who comes in with this like new sound and this new way of performing that people have never seen before and there's so much repression that's built up from them from years Mm -hmm. and years of having to be so prim and proper and you know golly gee willikers and now there's this guy rolling on the floor and this is something you've never seen of course they're gonna get whipped up into a frenzy yep you know it's well it was crazy because these club owners i mean yeah they would call the cops because they were afraid these teenagers were going to cause riots they were so whipped up (laughs) and again i go back to the photo because if you zoom in to the background of that photo between the kids freaking out you can see a cop in the audience. There's a cop in there the There is a cop in the background. And there's mm-hmm. also a guy who looks like he's made of paper. Look like, at that guy. <laughs> guy. in the back, he looks like he's just like... Oh. He like warped in there. See him? Oh. It's probably because the hair maybe from the kid in front of him. Yeah. <laughs> it just looks like he just doesn't belong there. But there's yeah. like this, this... That guy's my favorite. There's tons of pictures from that show of all these kids like freaking out. And um, it's one of the documentaries, which I will point everybody to actually zooms in to, so you can see the cop in the photo and you can it shows a bunch of other ones from that night, too. But they're all like in ecstasy. They're freaking out, man. So back to racism in America. That's super light topic that we all love talking about. You and me both, man. That's why I actually, like I say, I got really excited when I started doing this research to find all this out because, you know, I honestly didn't think of it being that far back and that impact. I honestly, and I, I, I think what one of the podcast episodes is actually not going to be about a specific artist, but actually about, you know, records. Can well, we talk about that? Well, we're going to how messed up that is that this might be a short set, but it'll be talking about how like there, there were performers like Sammy Davis Jr. And of course, he was in the Rat Pack and Frank Sinatra refused to play unless they would let Sammy stay in the hotel with them with the rest of the Rat Pack. I'd also like to do a short set on Hunter Hancock, actually. OK, because. You know, we've already established that he was the only one in in L.A. at the time that would play black music. But if you, you know, one of Jay's other stories in in one of these interview documentaries was that um, not only was he the only one that would play black musicians, but was he white or was he he was white? He was white. He was white. But also, if it was a originally a black musician's song. That was covered by a white person. He would not play the the cover. He would play only play the original. That's that's actually very progressive and really cool. Yeah. At a time when it probably could have gotten the radio station burned down. I mean, yeah. legitimately. Well, and so you can see like how he was such a friend to Big J in that too. In that Deacon's Hop never would have gotten as big. Big J could have come easily become a whisper. So I should mention, uh, you've heard me and Tracy kind of throw around uh, the term short set, uh, depending on the editing. But our short (laughs) set is going to be released on the first Wednesday of every month. And it's going to be either a topic about music 
that that may not be a, a particular a artist. Episode. It, yeah, it wouldn't be like a big robust episode, but something that mattered in the music landscape. So, you know, that's going to be where we're going to be talking about people who are one hit wonders. So they might not necessarily have a big body of work that we're familiar with, but, you know, they're no less important than Elvis or David Bowie or, you know, anybody like that. It's just there's not enough information to fill up a full episode. But we also want to touch on things like payola, which was yeah. a big part race relations um there's there's you just know, a, certain influential djs yeah that and kind of stuff things like that 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 shape us so that like i said we're constantly learning about this stuff but to understand what was going on in this time frame it's nice to have a little bit of context that goes with this because big j was growing up in a a time before the civil rights movement, before integration of schools, before the Civil Rights Act, before Martin Luther King and before Malcolm X, before these you know, great powerful speakers were coming in front and trying to, to right 175,000 years of wrong, basically. Right. <laughs> exactly. And I just pulled that number right out of the tuchus. To talk about it in an episode, you're, you're only getting a slice of the context. So with the short sets, we're going to be presenting you different ideas and different artists that might not get highlighted on a full episode but it also gives you guys a little bit more contents so if you have an idea for an episode please feel free to reach out to us we'll give you all our contact info at the end of the show a big reason why i wanted to talk about big j was because he kind of bridged this gap at the time like his audiences are highly integrated he's reaching you know these all these different races, not just his own. And he had, you know, in a time of segregation, his audiences were integrated as much as they possibly could be. He talks about doing show a show um, in New Orleans where they had to have two, sh they had to do two shows. One was for black, one was for white. And, but then they would have spillover where they would have, as he called them, white spectators so then down on the floor where they were playing what was the black audience, but these white spectators that would spill over to his black shows would be up in the balcony watching still. Wow. He's really pushing those boundaries. And, and what his music did bridged the gap. And I think that's really important to, to have that. You know, because he also talks about, and again, I, I'm not sure the timeline on this, but, you know, he had also talked about when he was coming up doing what was called the Chitlin Circuit in the South, where you could only get on the bill if you had a big record. And otherwise, you would try to get a spot in the band and and be the band for all the bigger names, uh, like Etta James and all that. Yeah. Like this Chitlin Circuit was in the South, and... So yeah, so he would he played one of the times he played in the band. So because in order to be, you know, you had to play in everybody else's band in order to to have a few minutes for you to play and for them to hear your stuff. But he he noted that um, you know so they'd have all the 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 main artists got the nice the nice buses and vans, but the band had the crappy vans. So he had a car, so he decided to drive himself. But then getting there, you know, again segregation is a thing so like they couldn't stay in the white hotels so they're reduced to people's homes or just the really crummy hotels and sometimes there was no room so they'd have to sleep in their cars and their vans like wow you know this is the stuff that he went through as part of his musical career and so 
to me again, even more important to note how integrated that his audience has turned out to be. And as I mentioned before, that's not all it's not all roses that he had integrated audiences. I mean, they had cops called on them all the time because people were afraid that they were the kids were too riled up and you know, he notes in one of the interviews like that they would they didn't know what to do and so he's like, Well then just don't give us the license to play here. Like I don't know what to tell you. Like while his integrated audiences loved him and loved these over-the-top performances that came out of him and the energy, his fellow African-American musicians often disapproved of these displays, shunning them as uncouth. I mean, I can honestly see that, you know, yeah. they're trying to make... They're trying to they're get trying res- to, They're trying to get respect. And they're trying to blend and, in and, and be taken seriously and, and be on the same level as some of the people that were not of color. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, and you can definitely see both sides, you know. In in one of the interviews that I read, Big J says, <clears throat> you know, as a as an example of of how his his fellow African-American musicians felt in an interview with LA Weekly in 2016, Big J says, "I played with Nat King Cole up in Oakland one time and I came on Powerhouse. The crowd was screaming. I ran into him later that night at Bop City." An after-hours spot, and he said, you'll never work with me again. I thought he was joking. He, was, he wasn't. Wow. So his performance style had some negative ramifications as well. But it's just, you know, it's really something that has to be mentioned about, about his story and his career. You know, he bridged some gaps, but he also made some enemies. Made some enemies. <laughs> Especially when it comes to race, it's never let's just put it out there and this is no pun intended when it comes to race it is never black and white it is always gray like there's always gray area so all of that super fun race talk aside we're gonna come to jay's second big single uh a song called there's something on your mind and now we've reached 1959 this becomes another really big hit for him but he actually did not write the song uh as noted in one of the interviews he says that many people think that he wrote that song, but he didn't. But he loved it. And when he heard it, he loved it so much. Uh, the guy that wrote it was, you know, kind of down on his luck and and needed it. So offered to sell it to Big J for $25. Oh, wow. So he went to his mom or told her, I need $25. I had to buy this song. I had to buy this song. And he ends up recording it with a singer named Little Sonny Warner. And Little Sonny Warner has his biggest influence is Ray Charles. So he sounds like Ray Charles and people don't really want to touch him. And and Jay's just like, you know, forget Ray Charles, just do you. And so he records it with with Little Little Sonny Warner. And at first it's not well received. Nobody wants to play it because it's got that Ray Charles sound or whatever, but it's not Ray Charles. Eventually he gets it to a DJ that plays it on the midnight radio show and it takes off and it goes on to be covered many 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 times over and and really an iconic song of the time and into current days now here's the thing (laughs) there's a little there's a couple discrepancies in the information for this in one of the documentaries discrepancy number one is which dj finally put it on air and jay notes in one of the documentaries saying that it was Hunter Hancock again, which would make sense because it ends up on on his label, on Hunter Hancock's label, releases the, releases the record. 
So, Hunter so it would Hancock, make sense. Has Hunter Hancock gone from just being a DJ to actually yes. being a label maker? Swinging records or something similar to that. Yeah. Interesting. Good for him. However, in the obituary article, that was actually pretty detailed on the career of Big J by the New York Times, they cited the DJ that released it as Rockin' Lucky at a San Francisco radio station. I wonder why the discrepancy. So I'm not 100% certain which one it was to release it. I would be inclined to defer to Jay's recollection, but it also could be potentially a, a just a mix-up in the documentary or in the story that maybe Hunter released it on his record label, but maybe this other DJ released it on the radio. I'm not sure. So apologies there, but that's the information that I have, and it's a little, there's that discrepancy. The second discrepancy is regarding the chart placement. How is that possible? I don't know. I would have to go digging and find the actual week and chart that it would be really hard to find it. But uh, unless I'm just dumb with research in which please tell me how I can <laughs> fact check this in future. So Wikipedia, the Wikipedia page for the song cited that it reached number two on the R&B chart. An article I found on Best Classic Bands cites that it reached number five. And the New York Times article simply cited that it was in the top ten. That's a huge discrepancy, though. Those are like... <laughs> so it could be why the New York Times said just top ten, because maybe they couldn't figure out. But if you're the New York Times and you can't find it out, find out then don't take it out on me that I couldn't. <laughs> So something on there's something on your mind blows up and it reaches some number on the R&B chart within the top 10. Yay. And is I'm not even going to touch on the DJ thing again. I just can't. I just, I'm so I'm so disappointed I couldn't figure that out cuz it's a big song for him. But also maybe there is a discrepancy in that because there were so many artists that have redone it. Possible, but the original version is still cited most because there's so many artists that have redone it. Fair. He's got all this music success now because now he's got his second big hit. And he's still playing. But in 1960, McNeely marries Jacqueline Baldane, better known as the soul singer Jackie Day. Oh, wow. Yeah. She wasn't 16. She was not 16. <laughs> yeah, so he was married to Jackie Day until the late 70s. The marriage ended in divorce. Mm. But they remained close after that. Like, I don't think there was... From all, from, well, the single account I could find anything on about it, there was not bad blood. They remained close. Any kids? They or? did have two kids, mm -hmm. uh, Richard and Jacqueline Jay. Wondering if they're carrying on their father's legacy. Yeah, me too. I'm curious about that. So Jackie, unfortunately, she went into a coma in late 2006 or mid-2006 and um, died in on January 4th, 2007. So Big J would remain popular throughout the early 60s before leaving the industry in 1971 because it's kind of his popularity has dwindled. So he leaves the industry in 1971 to become a postman of all things. Wow. Yeah. That is not the career path I would have chosen for him, but okay. Well, a little unexpected. I mean, you have two big hits, but I suppose it's probably still not bringing in the revenue of a, of a bigger artist right you know because he's not a singer he's a saxophone player so he kind of relies on other artists and bands to kind of pull it all together maybe I don't, I don't, 
Couldn't tell you. But mm. uh, thankfully, he returned to music in the 80s thanks to the revival of R&B. So, but now he's mostly touring and recording overseas. So he's still doing stuff here. And his colleagues in the industry recognize his influence and his contributions. But he's mostly overseas now. Which, really cool other story. Uh, he was playing with Detroit Gary Wiggins at the Quasimodo Club in West Berlin the night the wall came down. That is awesome. Yeah. And, and Hasselhoff gets all the credit. Oh, of course. Stupid Hoff. No. Hey. <laughs> hey. Just kidding. Love you, Hoff. Don't you hassle the Hoff. I love you, Hoff. Um, so there's um, a quote from PonderosaStomp.com. Well, from Wikipedia that cites PonderosaStomp.com. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> about that performance and that night. It says, and Cold War legend has it that they blew down the Berlin Wall in 1989 with earth-shaking sonic sax torrents outside the Quasimodo Club in West Germany. So when they say that, I'm guessing that Jay did one of his walk outside, one of his walk outside with the rest of the crowd, and let's blow this mother down. And that was Kinda 19. Cool. That was 1989. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I remember watching that and just not really understanding the implications of it. As far as what what it actually meant for the wall to come down, and as I got older and and learned about what Checkpoint Charlie was and everything, now watching it come down makes me cry. So I can only imagine being there and knowing it because the the Berlin Wall I think just started being built in like the 30s so you know after I love how you're looking at me like you're watching a History Channel special that <laughs> music. <laughs> That's the only thing but, I had to say about it. No, but music I know, actually it's, music, it's horrible. music was actually a really big thing with the Berlin Wall because the difference between East Germany and West Germany was like the I forget I see and this is where it's the bad thing is I forget which side was which, but one of the sides would get all the new stuff from America. Like So you know how you told me earlier that like science was not your strong subject in high in like school? Yeah. Yeah. History, I'm awful. Like I'm oh, terrible. Man, I don't I know if you love history. I'm terrible at it. So like this is actually really good for me <laughs> because I have to, you know, focus on dates and things that happened. And so I'm I'm working on it. Yeah. The thing is, is is that let's call it East Germany wasn't getting the new music. It wasn't getting new technology. It wasn't getting the computers. It wasn't getting the TV. It wasn't, they were kind of in the dark and... Oh, then blow that wall down. Yeah. Big J's got to distribute some songs. <laughs> yeah. And so there were people there that were tearing down the wall that had never heard, you know, rock and roll, I think, you right. know. So it is a big deal for, for Big J to have been at, at the Berlin Wall at its destruction because that was a huge moment in time. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that's kind of awesome he was there. Yeah. I'm an I'm an I'm a history nerd. Yeah, that's the thing that I really I had fun with this one because there's just so many really cool stories. It's like it's, man, he's I really like, wish that I would have known him better personally. Just be like, tell me some stories, Big J. He also actually played at the Grammys. And I want to say 1987. I was gonna cut this story, but it's just too cute. So in 1987, I believe they played the Grammys, and it was the only year 
that they had R&B, like blues, like blues artists actually perform. But they made them all perform in one 12-minute performance. Was it televised? Yeah. It was. Unconfirmed, actually. Because, again, this is one of his stories. I only ask because there are parts of the Grammys that they don't show. And so it's kind of like there's the technical Oscars and then there are the Oscars. And the technical Oscars are not televised. So... Unless you're in, like, the big 12 categories, it's not televised. There are parts of it that are cut. So Yeah, and this one was, again, another one of the stories that he tells in one of the documentaries. He They do this 12-minute 12 12 minute performance and where everybody has to audition for their spot and, like, to be able to perform in this segment. It's unclear as to whether or not Big J actually got a spot or if they made a spot for him, hmm. like the other performers, because um, he ends up coming up from the audience. So he starts... Where he starts is in the audience, in the front row, sitting on Whitney Houston's mom's lap, (laughs) playing his saxophone. And then, you know, they got the spotlight on him and they're kind of laughing or whatever. And then he makes his way up to the stage to play with everybody. But he was he played in that performance you know again from him telling the story it's unclear as to whether or not he was intended to be in that performance or if his friends just were like no we're gonna we're gonna sneak you in (laughs) either way i'm not sure but that's freaking amazing (laughs) from there i mean he basically ends up playing until he died he released uh his last album big j mcneely blowing down the house in october of 2016 then he had his 91st birthday party at joe's uh like as i mentioned at the beginning of the podcast like so he was playing right up till the end um i think he was working on another album Mm. i'd have to go back and check with the label and find out uh he when he passed, he was he was on several labels throughout his career. Uh, when he passed away, he was with Cleopatra Records. So he had a really thorough career, and throughout that career, he collaborated with artists like Professor Longhair, BB King, Etta James, King Curtis, Gene Vincent, Buddy Guy, Booker T, and Conway Twitty, just to name a few. He had a huge career working with so many people. Wow. Um, you know, and he also inspired many artists. So when he'd play in Seattle, Jimi Hendrix's dad used to take him to shows. Oh, wow. Huh. So does that make sense with like his guitar solos yep. and his performance style? And he actually cited Big J as one of his uh, influences early on in his career, too. And wow. and really kind of pushing those boundaries and those limits. And so I'm going to kind of leave on a couple other little tiny things like we've done a lot of just social commentary and things in general because this is now are you gonna touch on a lot actual death or oh yeah (laughs) you know the whole point of this podcast big j had a great career up until his death on september 16th of 2018 virgo death oh he's not a virgo though he's a no, but his Taurus. death his death was a Virgo. Stop showing off. September 16th. September sixteenth. 
he passed away from late stage prostate cancer. Which is how every episode of this podcast is going to end with someone dying. Noted by the New York Times in McNeely's obituary was something that I full-heartedly agree with after having listened. Uh, researched him out Um, they noted that he played a pivotal role in establishing the saxophone before the electric guitar supplanted it as the featured instrument among soloists at the dawn of rock and roll i felt like that kind of summed up everything that i researched and everything that we've done here so perfectly um that it really was i mean he bridged gaps and he pushed boundaries and he created his own sound and style and and kind of helped bring us into where we are now so it stands to reason that there's actually much debate that with as much influence that he seemed to have in the history and the evolution of music why he has yet to be acknowledged with an induction to the rock and roll hall of fame when asked in an interview with jazzwax.com which technically was with i believe the author was mark myers uh jay replied i don't know I guess the people who make those decisions don't realize I'm still around. Wow. Wake up, sheeple. <laughs> so I felt like that was kind of the perfect quote to close on because there's a lot of people out there that don't know who he is, myself included, before last April. I had no idea. And and even then, I really had no idea until I really started researching for this. And, you know, he has been inducted into the R&B Hall of Fame uh, and he was awarded in 2001 which goes way back to the very beginning of the podcast the Pioneer Award in 2001 um, by the Rhythm and Blues Foundation it so, just, but it it's you know what's great about the story is that is that he just got a podcast episode because a girl happened to wander into a bar. Yep, and I couldn't leave after I I I completely understand. I could not leave. Yeah, and and because of that performance, you started to dig and you started to you know yep. find out more, and because of that, we have this episode now, and because of this, he's got another piece in you know out into the universe and some kid might listen to this podcast and pick up a saxophone and try to emulate big j and maybe one day those kids will be on the charts here's hoping i mean i really like i i uh when i'm doing the research i like to listen to the music to get me kind of inspired by the artists that i'm looking at and and looking into and you know there's they're really kind of fun i mean we only really talked about two of his major hits but he had a a number of others um you know including nervous man nervous which great freaking song (laughs) great song and um you know a whole album that just came out at the end of last year or i'm sorry at that toward the end of 2016 and you know there is a book out there called nervous man nervous and there's a couple of just short documentaries on youtube that's just really fun to listen to him kind of retell these stories about his career and i definitely would encourage people to just you know take three minutes and listen to one of the songs or or you know if you really like it take 20 minutes and watch the little documentary it's you know these are these are people with some pretty interesting stories excellent job and i'm i'm really glad that i got to find out about somebody that was such a pioneer and i didn't i didn't even know his name yeah 
And that's oh. that's the point of this podcast. That's the point. I mean, uh, I do fast because I know you're very good at this and I forgot to do them at the beginning of the episode. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Sources. Sources. We love sources. I, I know I, I told a couple as I went through, um, but sources include jazzwax.com, bestclassicbands.com, the New York Times, electricearl.com. That was really only for info on Jackie Day. Um Cleopatra Records, their website and blog, um, of course, Wikipedia. And then there was two documentaries on YouTube, one which was sourced from Cleopatra Records called Blowing Down the House that went out in conjunction with the record. And another one that if you just search Big J McNeely documentary, you'll find it. (laughs) Well, excellent job. Thank you for that. You are very welcome. We got a history lesson, and I love that. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We have a fun little surprise that we will be doing uh, short sets uh, the first Wednesday of every month. So if you want to support the show, which would help us out bunches, uh, you can find us on Patreon.com at Patreon.com backslash Rock and Roll Heaven. You can find us on Twitter at Rock and Roll LT. You can find us on Facebook at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. You can find our Instagram where you can see our lovely faces and pictures of everybody that we're talking about. And we'll post the the picture that Tracy's been talking about on our Instagram there. And mm-hmm. you can do that on Rock and Roll Heaven LT. And you can check out our super fun website, which has every letter in the English language except for the letter Z. But if they could fit that in, I'm sure they would. And you can do that at Rock and Roll Heaven L dot wixsite.com backslash my site so rock and roll heaven l dot w-i-x-s-i-t-e.com backslash my site and you can also email us at rock and roll heaven lt at gmail.com and please feel free to send in story ideas or artists that you'd like to hear us cover or if you have a really awesome story about the time you met Someone in rock, they can be living or dead. It's okay. We just want to hear cool stories about rock stars. Heck yeah. And, uh, well, that about does it for this week. Again, thank you so much, guys. <laughs> um, Thanks for listening, everybody. And and keep rocking in the free world. Bye, LD. <laughs> Bye, TJ. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.